Turn your Bible open to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. We're beginning a new four-week series in the book of Jonah, so I'd love for you to turn your Bible open. If you've got an iPad or phone and you're just using that app, that's great. Or if you've got the hardback, that's great. So Jonah chapter 1. Jonah is this wonderful book. And it, it's in, if you don't know a little bit of your Old Testament, there are at the, at the end of the Hebrew Scriptures, at the end of the, our Old Testament, there are 12 minor prophets, what are called minor prophets. They're, it's not like they're minor, but they're just smaller books. So they're called the minor prophets. And um, they have some things in common. One of the major things that all these prophetic books have in common is that God is using all kinds of different people with different backgrounds and wiring to call people back to himself, people that have been wandering away and using them as a mouthpiece to call them back to himself. But this particular book stands out among all the minor prophets for several reasons. One of them is that it's just such a crazy, wild story, if you know anything about it. And the second is it uses this guy who's kicking at it. He's reluctant. He's not just reluctant. He's like trying to fight against the call of God in his life. Not like the other guys, but he just actively tries to go the opposite direction, and God keeps reeling him back in and moving in the direction that he wants him to go. And there's, of course... When I say Jonah, you say, really? Really? Now, here's the deal. At the end of the day, at the end of our four weeks together, hopefully that doesn't come, like Jonah and the whale, doesn't come to mind. Because, of course, there's no whale in the story. That happens to be probably um, the leftovers from Walt Disney in our lives. Did you know that this is a little strange fact, and we're not going to camp on it very much, but... Um, that John Calvin, when he wrote his commentary on Jonah, had this one take that it was Jonah was leaving where he should have been going and going to Tarshish, the land of pleasure. And so when Walt Disney saw that little theme, he thought, Pinocchio. And he writes the story of Pinocchio, connects it to a whale. And so when we think Jonah, we think what well, we shouldn't think, right? Here's what we should think. At the end of the day, hopefully, when we think about Jonah, we think about the power, the movement of God's calling on a person. How irresistible his call is for us. Even though when we hear it sometimes, we buck against it, we do everything we can to run the opposite direction. God calls us, and that's a grace in our life, actually. It's a privilege, an honor that the God of heaven and earth would call us and give us a meaningful, eternally purposeful movement for our life. Out of his voice, he would speak to us. This is his word. And I just praise Dewana for planting that in people's lives and the parents who invest in the life of your kids. This is his word, spoken word to us, his call on our life. Jonah, of course, is also a book about his plan, God's plan, to rescue all kinds of people. And we're going to see that this morning as we dive into Jonah chapter 1, that God in his wonderfully creative way gets after the most unlikely of people. We have in our perspective that's often, you know, skewed by our upbringing and our culture and the layers of understanding that we have that can be whacked. We have a misperception of what God's going after. But God has his great purposes for us, and often it includes people that we would have never expected 
And it's a story of God's sovereignty and kindness. Actually, in every chapter in the book of Jonah, you'll see this, that God is the God of heaven and earth, and he is sovereign. He is the king. And it's a story of God's irresistible mercy, even to a people who might be incredibly evil or twisted, God has a plan, a plan that includes his forgiveness and grace. And it's also a story of God's great patience, which, of course, is really good for Keith and I, right, Keith? It's a really wonderful truth that God would be patient with me and with Debbie, right? He would be patient with all of us in the midst of us trying to run away from his purposes and his life, that, that Joel and I and Annie We've been targets of his mercy and grace, and he's patient with us. Just keeps being patient with me and with you. That's the big thing we want you to walk away from. Not the story of this big fish. That's pretty amazing anyway. Or the story of what happens to Nineveh, which, of course, is crazy great. Or this reluctant prophet. This is first and foremost a story about our God. The Scripture is not a revelation of all the other crazy details. I mean, it, it shows us the details of history. But first and foremost, it's the revelation of our God. We, we get into it this morning to try to understand him, to know him better, and to hear his calling on our life. It's a story about his greatness to save and the measure of his forgiveness, and that's what we're going to see about, hear about this morning. So just a little bit of historical context, and then we're going to jump into the text. In 746 B.C., Jeroboam II died. Jeroboam II was the king of the northern empire of Israel, the ten tribes of the north, and he had a long reign. And in the middle of that reign, we're told in 2 Kings 14 that, that Jonah was a prophet who was active in, that, in the middle of his reign as a mouthpiece of God. And in the New Testament... Jesus himself mentions on a couple occasions that Jonah was a real person, actually. He was, he was a prophet, a historical person. So we know that Jonah existed, and he had a prophetic voice in the life of the northern kingdom. But in 746, Jeroboam II dies, and it's a pivotal time in the history of the northern empire. Because at the same time, there was an empire to the east that was rising. It was... Uh, a unique empire in the annals of human history. It was the Assyrian Empire. And among other things, what they were known for was that they were the most brutally vicious empire in the course of human history. Historians write about their empire, and it's, um, it's X-rated. I, I can't even go into the brutality that they practiced. Every time that they invaded a different place, they would flay people. They would skin them alive, and while they were still living and breathing, they would be torturing them excessively. They, they were vicious beyond imagination. And of course, in response to that, the nations hated the Assyrians. And Jonah himself grew to hate these people. He saw them as evil. They were evil personified. And yet, um, we find out later on in the story that in 722, it was the Assyrians that conquered the northern kingdom. They had control of all this. And, and the center, the locus of their power was this great city, Nineveh. And those 
who were outside, who were non-Assyrians, hated this place. Without context, with that context, it was a Nineveh is about 550 miles northeast of Jerusalem. This is what happened starting in verse 1 of Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo, that is their livelihood, right, that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship, the hull, and lay down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let's cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation? And where do you come from? And where's your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, it's Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. And therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. The men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And this is the word of the Lord for us this morning. We're going to leave Jonah in the water for next week. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah. We don't know how exactly that happened, but it happened in a very clear way for him, distinct. So obviously God speaking to him, calling him, to Nineveh. Jonah, the ironic twist, has a name that uh, should tie into the message, but he's going against his own name. His name means dove, and in the Old Testament, 
there were a couple of strong symbols with that. First symbol was, if you remember Noah, when the flood happens and he lands aground, he sends out a dove, comes back with an olive branch. It's a symbol of peace. Noah's name symbolized peace. He was to send out peace to a place that had no peace. It was a place of evil and debauchery and torture. And, and he had a message of peace, but he didn't want to go there, did he? he? He had no peace in his own life, and he didn't want to bring peace to anybody else, and he was running the opposite way. And the, the second great symbol of his name was sacrifice, because Leviticus 5 and Leviticus 11 tell us that the dove was that sacrifice, a peace offering to God. So his name means something. Every Old Testament name, it has some kind of meaning, and it's connected to the message here for Jonah. But um, he wants nothing to do with it, right? He gets this great idea in his mind, I can run from the presence of the Lord. Now, before you judge, I just want to say that every person that I've ever known has run from the presence of God some point in their life. You've run away from God's clear call for you. I've run away from God's clear call for us to do something, to be involved in a particular activity, to, to speak out the gospel. And we, we wrestle with that, and we try to run the opposite direction in our own foolishness. And that was the story of what's happening to Jonah at this point. And he did it for two like reasons that are clear. The first is, Here's the message. Here's the call of God in his life. Go to the center of this place that is viciously brutal and evil and go there to their capital city and speak to them that they're doing evil. Be a prophet and condemn them for their evil and call them back to God and warn them what the consequences are. That's what your mission is. And of course, he's got to be thinking, what? <laughs> I'm not doing that, man. I'm, I, that would be taking my life in my hands. I'm, I'm not going to survive that if I do that. But the bigger reason we know from the text itself is not just that he was afraid, it's that he wanted the people of Nineveh to go straight to hell. Right? That, he, did, he hated those people. And he wanted no part of God's mercy in their life. He didn't want them to experience the forgiveness of God. And he knew this little thing about God, that, that God is a lot more merciful than we are. That God's a lot more forgiving. And he didn't want God to forgive those people that he hated. I know that's never been your experience. That you are huge and full of grace. But that was his story, man. He, he saw those people. You've got those people, right, in your life that you really can't stand. And maybe for good reasons, you think. And he struggled with the call of God, so Jonah decides that he's going to run to go the opposite direction. Of course, you saw the title of the message this morning. Right. And it's based off this psalm, Psalm 139, that's familiar to some of you. Verse 7, the psalmist asks a rhetorical question, where can I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? Where exactly can you go that's outside the presence of God? 
So that's the rhetorical question. And the psalmist says, if I send to heaven, you were there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you were there. If I take wing of the morning and dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. You'll be there wherever I go to lead and to protect me, is what the psalmist is saying. Wherever I go, you're present with a purpose. So he's trying to flee from the presence of God, which is stupid, by the way. Can we just own that? We've all done it, right? And it's foolish because the fact is there's no place I can go except one, and that's hell. That's what makes hell hell, by the way. It's absent the presence, the power, the protection, the leading of God. So, Jonah's got an issue. He tries to run. He, um, he goes to Joppa, which is on the coastline the city, and he gets a ticket for the opposite direction from where God's calling him. And we're told in text a couple different times that it's not just that he's running the opposite direction of God's call. He's trying to get out of the presence of God and go to a different place, which doesn't exist, but he's trying to run. And then God just reveals a little bit more of himself to Jonah. And not just to Jonah, but to everybody that experiences this story. A storm comes up. It starts to build, and stronger and stronger it comes. And as the storm builds, the boat starts to suffer, and it looks like it's coming apart. So it's a major storm. And these mariners start to panic. And so in the panic moment, they all pray to their God. And then they discover that, what in the world? This guy is in the bottom of the ship, and through this massive storm, he's sleeping. I have no idea how it happens. The captain goes down to the hole, and he yells at Jonah, and he gets him to start praying to whatever God he has. And, um, and they're panicked in the moment as the storm starts escalating, and God start re- starts to reveal himself. And then in the middle of this storm, they decide, we've got to find out whose fault this is. So they cast lots. It's a superstition of the age. By the way, it's not the best way to discern the will of God. But the good news is God can reveal himself whenever and however he wants. And so he uses this superstition thing that they're doing, this casting of lots, and it points right to Jonah that he's, he's a fault. And as the story unwinds, Jonah doesn't ignore it. He's, he owns it, right? And they're saying, where in the world? Who are you? Where do you come from? What's your business? What do you, we want to know the story. And Jonah responds, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. Does he? And I fear the Lord. And it's not just any God that I belong to. I belong to the God of heaven and earth and the sea and the dry land. I belong to the one God who controls everything. And I've been trying to run from him. At this point, the mariners have this great insight that Yahweh is the God of heaven and earth and the sea, and that he's great. They see, they experience firsthand the force of his greatness there in that storm. And you would think that they would beat the snot out of Jonah at that point. 
or something like that. And they ask him what to do, and he says, toss me overboard. Why? Why does he want to be thrown overboard? Because death would be better for him than going to Nineveh. He still is running from God. He does not want to do what God wants him to do, and so he's going to try to take his own life. Yeah, throw me into the storm. I know I'm going to drown. But these mariners decide to give mercy, even as the storm keeps escalating, and they try to row to the shore. And they strain against the oars, and it's not, they're not going anywhere. They're not making any headway, and the storm keeps escalating, getting worse and worse. And finally, they just look at each other, I'm sure, and then they pray. Their first prayer to Yahweh, God, have mercy. We're innocent, but it looks like you've got a purpose in this. And they end their prayer, pleading for God's mercy, and they take Jonah and they hurl him. They just huck him as far as they can away from the boat into the, into the sea. And then their boat gets rocked, doesn't it? Because they throw him in, Jonah goes under, and it's calm. Very cool, isn't it? All of a sudden, it's silent. And these experienced mariners have experienced the presence, the power of God in their life. And then Scripture says, The men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. See, the disobedience of one man, it led to the salvation of this group of mariners. How unlikely is that? The story really in chapter 1 is not about Jonah. He was being stupid, yeah, and he was going the other way. It's about God declaring his greatness and his salvation to a group of unlikely guys on this boat, mariners from Joppa. Who would have chosen them except the Lord God? God's sovereignty and grace always extends farther than we anticipate, doesn't it? We, in our human limited capacity, we think God will always work this way, and he'll accept and give grace to this kind of person. So sometimes we pray for that kind of person, the person we like, the neighbor that we like, the person at work that we like. But guess what? God has this wide, great mercy to pray and to move and and to change lives of people that we don't even like, that we would have nothing to do with. And yet he's still at work with them because mercy casts a wide net. The gospel tells us that hardened mariners and seasoned betrayers experience the mercy of God. And that is good news. That you and I experience the mercy of God, even though we've run from him, even though we're a long ways away from him. And that's why we're talking about Jonah. We have begun um, this year talking about what it look like for us to live intentional lives for the good news of Jesus and his mercy and grace for us, to break out of the mold of where we've been going. And to be a different kind of people, a different kind of church that reaches out to people who are in need of grace. And so we've called people to pray faithfully. But you know what? 
I think your five might be in need of enlargement. Who are those people that currently exist in your life that are unexpected? That's part of the message of Jonah, the unexpected people God calling himself, these mariners in chapter 1, and later on, the most unexpected people, the people of Nineveh, to come to him. What would it look like to pray for the unlikely? Yesterday, I'm um, cruising around downtown, and um, I, I, I walked by this person that I recognized because I've gotten some of his flyers. He's a politician. And he, um, he doesn't have the same convictions that I have, according to his flyers. <laughs> and I walked right by him. And I walked by him a second time when I knew God saying, hey, you probably had a conversation with that guy. It's like, I don't want to do that. And then I thought, oh, no, I'm preaching out of Jonah chapter 1. What am I going to do here? Can't run from God. Shoot. Yeah, I mean, it happens all the time in our life, doesn't it? People that we wouldn't want to interact with, God moving us and calling us to have spiritual conversations with. And that's the beauty of the Lord God stretching our boundaries, moving us to talk to people that we wouldn't necessarily connect with, who might be from a different profession or culture, ethnicity, what, whatever, all right, different different kind of politician. God wants us to engage in these conversations, to draw people to himself. If we're a follower of Jesus, this is what it's all about, about us living for the glory of God and expressing the gospel through our life and our speech to people in our lives. And God had a message for those those mariners, didn't he? The last verse, verse 16 in this passage says that those mariners came to this place. Then the men, after this experience, feared the Lord exceedingly. Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is what? It's the beginning of wisdom. It's the starting point. When we respect the Lord God for who he is and all his majesty and his sovereignty and his power, when we get it, who God is, and we respect him, that's the beginning, not of us just being knowledgeable, but of us knowing how to live life, be wise. And that's where it began for them. They feared the Lord. Then they offered a sacrifice. We don't know what kind of sacrifice they made to God, but they got it. That God is great and he's worth our sacrifice. Paul tells us in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's right. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We gather together to worship God and the great form of worship that we experience together as a community is offering ourselves as a sacrifice to God, our our priorities, our desires, our resources, our skills, all that we are to God as a sacrifice. That's what church is about, right? We sacrifice ourselves, and it's a meager sacrifice. And it's not like God can't live without it, but God deserves it because he is God. And these men, they're on that boat in the calm after what they just experienced. They saw God and they respected him 
and they sacrificed to him. And then it said they offered him vows. They made a commitment to God. We've talked about this in the course of this year. That's what we're focusing on, a commitment to God. Making sure that, that we have this commitment right. We've placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he is. And our heart is to beat with God's heart for the nations. The same message and mission that he has for us to go there, to run with him and not to run the opposite direction. And yet we're so good at keep wanting to run the opposite way when God calls and we're not quite prepared, we think, or we're still resistant or we're still selfish. We're, not, we're self-centered and not gospel-centric. So we try to run. Here it is, this great message in Jonah chapter 1. Where can you run from the presence of God? Where can you run from the call of God? You have a choice to make. Either run with me, which is great and a place of reward. You'll find your purpose there. Or you can try to run away from my presence to Tarshish or to Newark or wherever. But it doesn't help. It's not helpful to you. So, a couple themes from this great portion of God's word. First, you can't run from the Lord. It doesn't work. You can try, but you'll never be successful running away from the Lord because he's sovereign and he's ever-present. And by the way, that's good because if you were at a place that was without God, you would be in hell. Second, God loves more people than you do. The Jonah um, is a great example of that, right? But it's so true. I believe there are people that God has called you and I to that we have yet to love for a lot of reasons. And we don't naturally love everybody, do we? There are people that at work and at school and our neighborhood that we're irritated with that we degrade us for whatever reasons. But God so loved the world. He just loved the world. Made every man and woman and child in his image with his great love and creativity and grace. He died for every man, woman, and child. He loves people better than we do. He loves more people than we do. And we're called to be better lovers. First John tells us that. Hey, how do, how do people know that you are a follower of Jesus? How do people know that you love God? By the character, by the capacity of your love for others. Third, no one is outside the saving power of God. And we're going to see that theme reoccur in the book of Noah. But who would have expected these mariners from Joppa to be the target of God's saving grace in chapter 1? That's the twist in the story. You think it's about Jonah, and all of a sudden, oh, whoa. Chapter 1's not about that. It's about these guys coming to saving faith in the Lord God because he had them in his mind. And he knew that he could use a guy running away, a disobedient guy, to proclaim his power and grace even through disobedience. How much better would it have been if Jonah would have been obedient? And finally, the miracle in Jonah, there are a series of them, aren't there? 
But the real true miracle in this book is saving faith. It's not big fish. It's not Jonah for sure. The real true miracle is saving faith. That's still the miracle that's going on every day, by the way. That's still the power of God that can be unleashed in you and the life of people around you. It's saving faith. That God would take a person who is running the opposite direction and rescue them. That God would take a person who is praying to their own gods, had other priorities, wasn't even thinking about God Most High, and all of a sudden arrest their attention to draw them to himself. That God would take a people, an, an evil people, unspeakably, grotesquely evil like the Ninevites, and draw them to himself. And he's still doing it. I know it because I know some of you have been saved, have been rescued by faith. I know it because I look in the mirror. And God has that power today. If you came this morning and you do not yet know, I've not yet placed your faith in the Lord God, I'm calling you to do that. See the power and the majesty, the wonder of God's rescue for you, that, that he sent his only son to die on a cross to demonstrate his love toward you, that if you just place your faith in him, you can experience life. And for those of us who follow him, to know this, that there is no person outside the saving grace of God and that he wants to love more people than we presently do and call them to himself through his power and his grace. And wouldn't it be great to participate in the miracle of God this week? Can I pray for you? Father, thank you for your word, the power of this story. And I pray you would be working out this story in us, calling people like you love to do, like even these mariners God, that, that looked like they were just a tangent in the story, but you would, by your grace, been calling these guys to yourself, just like you love to call us. We're reminded, too, in this story, Lord, how foolish it is to try to run the opposite direction from your presence because there's no place we can go that's outside of your protection and love and care for us. And I pray, Lord, you enlarge our hearts so we can be part of this great work that you're involved with, calling people to yourself. Give us that kind of heart, Lord. Help us to see you, to know you, and to follow you with all of our hearts. And we pray this in the strong name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said.